And now, part three, the finale of Jody Arias, the three-part series with our collab with True Crime Cat Lawyer. We really hope you enjoyed this series. Let us know. And as always, we will see you next Tuesday with a new episode. On April 16th, the defense rests their case. A lot of reports I read said that when the defense was presenting their case and questioning their witnesses, the jury was kind of distracted or less attentive to what they were saying. As we all probably know from Law & Order, the state has the burden of proving guilt beyond a reasonable doubt. And so after the defense presents their case, the prosecution's allowed to present rebuttal evidence or testimony to refute whatever the defense is presented. Martinez had his own psychologist to dispute both Ms. Lavayette's testimony and Dr. Samuel's testimony. She talked about the wild variations in abuse stories that were told over the years. In her opinion, she found no objective evidence of significant abuse. She explained that Dr. Samuel's testimony and his diagnosis of PTSD probably wasn't accurate. She said that the memory lapses that Jody was reporting, allegedly, were not consistent with the kind of short bursts of blackouts that normal PTSD patients have. And based on the testing that she gave to Jody, she felt it was more appropriate to diagnose Jody as borderline personality disorder. According to Dr. DeMart, who is the prosecutor's expert, this borderline personality disorder caused Jody to have an irrational fear of abandonment. And I think that we can all agree about the fear of abandonment piece. So there were also some other rebuttal witnesses like a former coworker and friend of Travis, another gas station employee. The detectives presented their rebuttal testimony. But I would say one of the more important rebuttal witnesses that they presented was Deanna Reed. And Jesse, you had talked about her earlier. When she testified, she told the jury she had never been called names by Travis. He'd never been physical with her kind of the same that we heard from some other girlfriends. Jody's attorney, Kirk Nermy, was able to get her to admit that she had actually had sex with Travis on several occasions. I'm glad you mentioned that. Okay, so, because I remember hearing that he did have sex with someone else in the Mormon community. Was she the only one who said, that, like, on the stand? Yes. Okay, okay, that's fascinating. Good to know. You had mentioned earlier They did remain close. They were still really good friends. I get what they were trying to do with asking her this question. Like, oh, he's also sleeping with other people. Like, he's not this good Mormon. But at the same time, I feel like it still kind of cuts against Jody because it's just reinforcing the prosecution's argument that she killed Travis out of some kind of jealous rage for sleeping with other women. Yeah, I I have to ask. So when Nermi's cross-examining from what you saw, I think he's actually a really competent defense attorney, to be honest. I mean, you're, you have way more insight into this. I would say as a public defender kind of defense attorney, because obviously you can hire like a Johnny Cochran type and get an insanely different kind of experience. But 
Do you think at some point he's basically like, look, I just don't want her to get the death penalty. Like, I don't, I, I'm not going to try to prove her any which way, other way. I just don't want her to die. That's it. And so I'm actually, that is a wonderful segue into my next point. Deanna Reed was the last witness to testify in the trial. And so after four months of listening to the prosecution, listening to Butterfingers Jody, and listening to the defense, they present closing arguments to the jury on May 2nd, 2013. Prosecutor Martinez's first sentence is almost identical to the one he said in his opening statement. And that was that Jody killed Travis Alexander. She's a manipulative liar. And he tells the jury that Jody was the abusive one, not Travis. So he walks the jury back through all the evidence and the testimony he'd presented over the last few months, summarizing the key points that came out. He told the jury that on June 4th of 2008, Jody came to Mesa, Arizona for the sole purpose of murdering Travis. And so he says this is the absolute definition of premeditation. Her murder plan, as far as the events kind of leading up to that June 4th day, were kind of meticulously planned. And we talked about some of those with the car rental and the gas cans and all of that. So he said, focus your attention on the evidence and the testimony that was presented. Then it was time for the defense. They continued to talk about the salacious details of this relationship between Jody and Travis. Nermi's first line was literally sex, lies, and dirty little secrets. He focused on those two to three minutes between the time the last picture of Travis was taken in the shower when he was alive, and then the next photo of his body on the ground. So he told the jury that it was their job to decide what happened in those two to three minutes. Was this the culmination of an act of premeditation, or had Jody been forced to defend herself from an attack that was instigated by Travis? He then proceeds to tell the jury that his client isn't likable. And nine days out of 10, he doesn't like Jody either. At least he wasn't lying. Truly. But also, have you ever, have you ever heard a lawyer say that? So I haven't heard somebody go so far as to the nine days out of 10, but I definitely have heard cases where there's not the likable defendant. The defense really does point that out and says, look, my client's not likable. You don't have to like him. And that's what Nermi was kind of focused on is he says, it's not about whether or not you like her. It's mm -hmm. about those two to three minutes and whether that period of time was premeditation or self-defense. It's interesting. So he starts that closing argument by saying, is this premeditation or self-defense? But then after he kind of walks through the evidence that they presented and everything like that, he gets to sort of the last summary and he says, what this evidence shows is that either what happened is that Jody Arias defended herself and didn't know when to stop or she gave in to a sudden heat of passion. Ultimately, if Miss Arias is guilty of any crime at all, it is the crime of manslaughter and nothing more. <gasps> okay. Now remembering what you said at the beginning, 
he said self-defense, correct? Mm -hmm. In his opening statement. And then in his closing statement, it's manslaughter. So do you feel after seeing that and your knowledge, like that he had to do that at this point with all the evidence? I definitely would say that he had to do it after everything that happened during the trial. But I personally would have taken that approach at the very beginning because I don't think you have a good case for self-defense here. I'll go more into this later, but essentially self-defense finding would acquit Jody of murder. I definitely think at some point, whether it be during Jody's testimony or the rebuttal by the prosecution, they definitely had to shift their theory of the defense and they had to go with this crime of passion. So I think that's their best chance. Going for a full acquittal doesn't make sense anymore. And it, it goes back to what you had mentioned. The next best thing for the defense to argue is that she's guilty of this lesser manslaughter charge and that doesn't come with the death penalty. At this point in closing arguments, it is about saving Jody's life, essentially. Gotcha. That makes a lot more sense. They've both presented their closing arguments, but before the jury can deliberate, the judge has to provide them with instructions. And these instructions have all of the important definitions of various terms that the jury needs, the legal standards, the legal theories, and all of the different elements of the charges for the jury to make their determination. So the instructions also outline what the jury should consider, as well as what the jury can't consider in terms of testimony, evidence, etc. Before I get to the various elements of each option, I did want to just highlight some important instructions that are read to the jury, just in case you haven't heard jury instructions before. I think it's always kind of interesting to highlight these for people. So the jury must determine the facts only from the evidence produced in court. They mustn't be influenced by sympathy or prejudice. And after listening to the testimony and reviewing the evidence, the jurors are the sole judges of what happened. The lawyer's opening and closing statements are not evidence. The law doesn't require a defendant to prove innocence, nor is the defendant required to produce any evidence. The lack of evidence presented by a defendant is not evidence of guilt. The state has the burden of proving that the defendant is guilty beyond a reasonable doubt, which means that each element of each charge must be proven beyond a reasonable doubt. The instructions make it very clear that beyond a reasonable doubt isn't absolute certainty. It's proof that leaves you firmly convinced of the defendant's guilt. And something else to note for people, the state doesn't have to prove a motive, but if you do have a motive provided, the jury can consider that as part of their deliberations. So in Jody's case, in addition to these kind of background instructions, the jury was also presented with four options to decide what crime they believe Jody committed. There's first-degree premeditated murder, first-degree felony murder, manslaughter, and self-defense, which, like we talked about, is essentially an acquittal. So in order to find Jody guilty of first-degree premeditated murder, the jury decision has to be unanimous, and the jury has to find that Jody caused the death of Travis Alexander in that her actions foreseeably led to his death, they have to find that she intended to kill Travis or knew that her actions would cause Travis to die. And they have to show that Jody acted with premeditation. And this means that Jody must have reflected on her decision to kill Travis, 
even if only for a short while. So like I said before, the prosecution has to prove every element beyond a reasonable doubt. So if even one element isn't established in the jury's minds, they can't convict Jody of that crime. So the second jury instruction was for first-degree felony murder. So this is basically the felony murder rule, and it allows for a person to be charged with murder if someone dies in the commission of felony, even if there was no intent or premeditation to kill that person. If you were committing a burglary or a robbery, some kind of felony in the process, and someone died, that still qualifies for murder. You don't have to have intent at that point because the thinking behind it is that you have the intent to commit the felony. And so the intent is transferred then to murder because you intended to commit the felony and someone died when you committed that felony. She explained that way better than I did however many episodes ago. Honestly, I feel like we need you as like a phone a friend whenever we do our our, (laughs) our cases because sometimes we're like, wait, Which one's which? And then why didn't they convict him on this? You know, just incredible. For me, I feel like the felony murder was a little bit of a stretch to add, at least based on the story she told. And I think there is obviously some evidence. I don't really buy that she broke into his house that day. I think she was there by invitation. So I don't really see the felony murder piece. But if you think that you can prove the facts and the elements beyond a reasonable doubt, you include it. In my opinion, though, it still comes down to premeditated murder versus manslaughter. So in order for I'm going to go a little bit out of order and talk about self-defense just real quick. Again, I don't think the facts of the case would allow her to be acquitted because you have to find that a reasonable person in Jody's situation would have felt that the use of a reasonable, reasonable lethal force was necessary. And in my mind, I don't think there's any way you can argue that what happened to Travis was reasonable by any stretch of the imagination, especially when Jody is basically unscathed. I mean, those ankle scrapes, that's going to take some Neosporin and Band-Aids. You know what, Amanda? I totally agree with you. I've cut my ankle shaving in the shower before, and it hurts like a motherfucker. And I've wanted to kill my razor. And you know how bad that shit bleeds, too. She's garbage. And then she won prison idol. Like, no. What the defense, of course, wanted her to be convicted of was manslaughter. This doesn't carry the death penalty, and it would be a lot lighter prison sentence than first-degree murder. So manslaughter still requires intent, but the jury could convict Jody of the crime if they found that Jody acted in the heat of passion which was caused by Travis, and Jody had no time to cool down before she killed Travis. I think that there is an argument to be made that the facts could fit manslaughter, but I think it goes back to what I talked about earlier with the premeditation instruction. I think there was a point where she could have stopped and she didn't. And I think that period where she chose to continue was that premeditation and that reflection on killing him. Yeah, I think it's interesting. Sorry to interrupt. I, I, oh, no. I that she brought the gun, right? So my here's my theory: the intent was the gun. Let's do this thing, right? Like having sex was the foreplay to get him to lower his defenses, and then Shazam the gun. I don't know where the knife comes into it, like how that happened. Maybe it was literally like right there, like she said. It may, that would make sense because 
or did her plans change? And she was just like, like maybe, maybe they did get into an argument. Maybe they did. Maybe it was about her moving back or him, whatever. And she grabbed a knife or she grabbed the knife from the kitchen on the onset and then walked into the bedroom. They had sex and then it happened. I don't know. I just don't understand where the knife comes into this. Maybe the knife cutting the drape ties is true. Then she found out she wasn't invited on the trip that he invited somebody else. She found out the whole truth there. And it did become a quasi crime of passion at that point because she did plan to shoot him. But she found out he invited his side piece, his other side piece, on the trip to Cancun instead of her. And she just, in a blind rage, reaches over with the knife. And that's when she starts stabbing him. And she's like, I'm never going to kill him with the knife. And she has to get the gun and shoots him. And then he's probably still a little bit responsive after being shot. And she goes back to the knife. And yeah, I will say I didn't put this in there. And again, this is according to Jody. But according to Jody, there was never any plan for her to go on this Cancun trip. She knew about it well in advance. And she was never part of the trip. She was never going on the trip. She was never told she was going on the trip. At least that's what she testified to. Again, yeah. take it with a grain of salt because it came from Jody. She claimed that that was not the motive because there was never any plan for her to go on that trip. If her lips are moving, she lying though. <laughs> Agreed. So the jury took just 15 hours to deliberate before they found her guilty of first degree murder on May 8th of 2013. So because a unanimous decision is required to find a person guilty of first degree murder, each juror was polled, which basically just means that they were asked whether or not they agreed to the guilty verdict. All of the jurors were polled and they all agreed that Jody was guilty of premeditated murder. So that's it, right? We're done. Ah, no. Yay. No. Oh. <laughs> we're never done with pictures like this. There's still the matter of sentencing Miss Jody. At her sentencing hearing, her attorneys presented mitigating factors to the jury. And just as an aside, a mitigating factor is a fact that would reduce the culpability or guiltiness of the person. These are the mitigating factors that her attorney presented. She was 27 years old at the time of the murder, which I'm not really sure what her age has to do with anything because we also know that human brains are fully developed at around age 25. And by that age, Jody is a well-established adult who knew right from wrong. This is just my own personal belief, but I would only present age when it's an actual factor, such as, you know, a teenager. If you're at the age of 17, let's say, you don't want this person to be tried as an adult because they're only 17, that kind of thing. I don't think you bring it up when somebody's 27, but that's just me. Jody had no prior criminal history, which is always an important one to highlight. Jody was a quote unquote good friend. And I'm not really sure why this matters in a case where she brutally murdered a man. To who? <laughs> I was going to say that. To whom? <laughs> who is, who's her good friend? Because according to like what Travis, she told Travis was like, oh, I just can't keep girlfriends because they're like super jealous of me. And to then like, Darryl? I can't have a boyfriend because like he's like always going to want to hump me. Like, what? 
To Daryl, who she would pay her bills to? Or the first one. The first boyfriend who she... Vampire? She paid all his bills with no water. (laughs) Bobby the Vampire. Oh, my God. Oh, yes, Bobby. I couldn't remember his name. (laughs) Sorry. So they also brought up that Jody quote, lacked support from her family. And I found this one kind of interesting because from everything I read, even though Jody didn't have an amazing childhood, it seemed like her parents were there for her. And so were her grandparents and one of her sisters. And a lot of her family continued to defend her in the media during the trial. So I'm not really sure where that came from. Of course, the defense, you know, said that Jody suffered abuse and neglect as a child and an adult. Again, you have to buy into Jody's version of things for this to matter. These last three mitigating factors are stupid in my mind, and I would not have said them with a straight face. But they said Jody tried to make the best of her life and she consistently tried to improve herself. But my personal favorite, the mitigating factor for Jody is that she's a talented artist. Are you serious? I am one trillion percent serious. We're doing the Michael Jackson argument here where it's like, but he puts out such good music. He couldn't possibly do these things to kids. Really? I mean, I've seen her art. It's not bad. I'm not saying it's, but it's not fucking Picasso. Okay. It's not. I have in my notes. So you want me to give this woman less time in prison for a brutal and probably unprovoked murder because she's a talented artist? It doesn't track. That's insane. <laughs> You're right. I would how, to. how are they going to get prison tattoos? Because apparently she's really good at it. The jury deliberated for one hour less than they did in the conviction part of the trial. They informed the judge on May 24th that they were deadlocked as to whether or not to sentence Jody to death. The breakdown was... in favor of giving her the death penalty. And unfortunately, because of this deadlock, the judge had no choice but declare a mistrial in the penalty phase. So just to be clear, this was not a mistrial of the whole court proceeding. She was still convicted, still guilty of first degree murder. This was just a mistrial for the penalty and sentencing portion. So in Arizona, if there's a mistrial during the penalty phase, the prosecutor has the option to either accept the sentence of life in prison or they can convene a new jury to retry the penalty phase. They could work convene a new jury to decide whether or not Jody should get the death penalty. Of course, like all of us, Prosecutor Martinez hates Jody and he wants to get a new jury, really wants to get the death penalty. With numerous delays, including a point where Jody wanted to represent herself at the sentencing retrial, which didn't last long, the retrial officially started on October 21st, 2014, over a year after Jody had been convicted. The judge presiding over Jody's case was heavily criticized for the way she handled the original trial. The tone of a criminal trial is supposed to be set by the trial judge, and we've kind of talked about this a little bit before. The trial judge is really there to take control and limit the parties to efficient questioning and behavior. And most of the people in the legal community felt like the judge didn't do this in Jody's case. I mean, the theatrics, the circus, I mean, listening to that sex tape for an hour, there were far more efficient ways to conduct the trial than she did. On October 30th, 
2014, the judge ordered a media ban from the courtroom. So this was mostly in response to the defense telling the judge that they had an unnamed witness who refused to testify if the media was in the courtroom. Well, after basically being given unfettered access to the initial murder trial, the media obviously wasn't happy with the ban. So they sued for access and took it all the way to the Arizona Court of Appeals. And on November 3rd, the Arizona Court of Appeals ruled that the judge couldn't conduct secret witness testimony and the judge had to release the transcripts of the secret witness who testified on October 30th, which turned out to be none other than Miss Jody herself. The transcripts of her testimony were released on January 13th, 2015. I read through all the transcripts and there's just a few things I wanted to highlight it's essentially like a rehashing of the trial, but like a mini condensed version. But it is important to note that at this particular trial, Jody wouldn't be arguing her innocence. She's been convicted and she remained convicted at the time of the sentencing retrial. So the testimony she's giving is really trying to convince the jury that she didn't deserve the death penalty. And that's the focus. So she did admit to killing Travis. She admitted to lying to police about his murder, and she admitted to covering her tracks after the murder, including leaving the voicemail for Travis, driving to Utah to see Ryan Burns, and destroying evidence that she was ever in Mesa on the day Travis was murdered. She was also really gross and admitted to sending flowers to Travis's grandma after she murdered him, which I don't love. She also wrote a letter. Ugh. She wrote a letter and I read it and it's the most fucking disgusting thing I have ever read in my life. And she explains herself and shit. And you're just like, who are you? That's so gross. I hate her. <laughs> yes. <laughs> yes. The more you dig, the more you're just like, oh. And like she tried to say that the reason she did this is because that was the only like member of his family that she had met. Which, um, yeah, because she's batshit crazy, I wouldn't introduce her to the rest of my family. But also, let the man be. Like, you just killed him. Don't send shit to his family. A hundred percent. And then she was also at the memorial service. Yes, because she needed to keep up appearances. And it would have been weird and suspicious if she hadn't shown up. <sighs> yeah, it's just, it's crazy. It's crazy. So Jody, of course, you know, testified about the sex again and the abuse and her shitty childhood, all of that. But when it got time to the prosecution, they told the jury the only punishment in this case is death. The defense tried to argue she's got PTSD. She's got borderline personality disorder. Basically, her attorney said she was a, quote, troubled, mentally ill young woman who didn't deserve to be put to death. Okay. <laughs> I mean, I'm whatever. I mean, I, I don't think that, that that to me is not strong enough of a holdup against the death penalty specifically. I personally don't believe in it, but it doesn't mean that I don't know. I just don't think that's strong enough. I don't know. So this time, Jody's attorney had a few other mitigating factors he wanted to present to the jury. He talks about no prior criminal history. He talks about her age again. He also says she was remorseful, which eh, I don't really think so, but okay. He talks again about the emotional and physical abuse as a child and during her relationship with Travis. Again, if you want to believe her stories. So he said the abusive nature of her relationship with Travis caused her to suffer extreme emotional distress. 
And he said, Jody's quote, psychological makeup impaired her ability to cope with the tumultuous relationship she had with Travis. Kind he like, just called her crazy. How do you say someone's crazy without saying they're crazy? That. True. I mean, <laughs> oh, yeah. she's not insanity defense. Yeah. And I think that's the difference is that like, you can still be crazy, but were you crazy at the time you committed that crime? I don't think so in this case. So on March 5th, 2015, the jury once again told the judge they could not reach a unanimous decision on the death penalty. So the death penalty was taken off the table and Jody was sentenced to life in prison without the possibility of parole. And I didn't look this up, but I would assume that this is some kind of like Arizona law where if you have like multiple hung juries on the penalty phase, at some point the system just kind of steps in and is like, you can't prove it. You can't do this. Like, we're just going to give them life without parole. But I don't know that for sure. Better than a mistrial. It is. Yes. Because then we would have to do it all over again. So in October 2017, Jody sued one of her former attorneys, Mr. Kirk Nurmi, who we've talked about a little bit. He self-published a book about Jody and the trial. And Jody said that Nurmi didn't have her permission to publish the book and it was in violation of attorney-client privilege. So she filed this lawsuit and she also filed a complaint with the Arizona State Bar Association. Just a little backstory. By the two time these two parted ways in 2015, there was an incredible amount of animosity between them. Nermi eventually came to loathe Jody, and he actually quit working at the public defender's office because of her case. Basically, from everything I read, this trial just massively screwed up his life and probably his mental health. So he released a statement at the time saying he was going to fight this battle against Jody. But he eventually agreed to a four-year suspension after the bar investigated Jody's complaint and found that he had, in fact, violated attorney-client privilege because he never got Jody's permission to release the book. Jody filed an objection to the four-year suspension, and Nermi eventually agreed to a disbarment. So he lost his license to practice. I saw that on that documentary, and he is just... He's a broken man because of her. Like she destroyed him. Like you said, it's so sad. Now, would that be to practice in Arizona? Could he go to another state and become a lawyer? So it's in Arizona specifically, because that's where he was barred. But I think if he were to apply for other states, they would look at that. And a lot of times they give deference to that decision made and they won't grant somebody a bar license. You have to go through such a huge process to like apply to be a lawyer. And that would definitely come up in that process. At least when I applied in Oregon and Washington, there was a question on both of them about any disciplinary action that you have had as an attorney. And so that could be a reason why after reviewing your application, they would say, no, we're not going to give you a license to practice, even if you pass the bar. You would think all he would be able to say is Jody Arias. And they'd be like, oh, okay, you're cool. We'll let you practice. I mean, they should. But attorney-client privilege is one of the pillars of legal ethics. And finding somebody in violation of that, I think being associated with the shitstorm that is Jody Arias. Poor guy. Yeah. So I did want to be clear that 
because I'm sure you guys know there are attorneys that have written books about their various famous clients. If you have your client's permission, you can absolutely publish a tell-all book, but you have to have your client's permission because your client is the only one who can waive attorney-client privilege. So that was his biggest mistake in this case, was not having Jody's permission to make this book, which I think we all know she would not have given that permission. Yeah. And also probably she would want all this input. And he was like, fuck all of that. (laughs) (laughs) So Miss Jody, the wonderful human being that she is, filed an appeal of her conviction in April 2019, arguing that she had an unfair trial. And she argued that the trial wasn't fair because the judge failed to protect her from the massive, pervasive, and prejudicial publicity of the trial. But in a rare glimmer of hope before the world shut down in March 2020, a three-judge panel of the Arizona Court of Appeals issued a ruling finding that even though the prosecutor had engaged in misconduct during Jody's trial, that didn't mean that Jody was entitled to a new trial. They found that the evidence overwhelmingly showed Jody was guilty, and they also said that Jody failed to show that her defense team were adversely affected and could not perform a defense based on that prosecutorial misconduct. So basically, even if there was prosecutorial misconduct, it didn't change the fact that the evidence overwhelmingly suggested that Jody planned Travis's murder and she was guilty of first-degree premeditated murder. Jody was convicted based on her guilt despite the actions of Prosecutor Martinez. Yeah, so Mar- Martinez, he got disbarred because he Yeah, so I'm was... actually going to get right into that. Oh, oh, good, good, good. <laughs> good. I was like, please get into it because it's so fascinating. I don't know anything yes. about it. I just don't like the headline. So as I mentioned earlier, Travis was the first casualty of Jody Arias and Miss LaViolette and Nermi followed. But Mr. Juan Martinez was the latest because this happened most recently in July of 2020. At the time, he had been fired from the prosecutor's office after working there for 32 years. I guess back in 2019, he had been reprimanded. He was engaging in inappropriate and professional conduct toward female law clerks in the prosecutor's office. I didn't read a lot into it, but I read enough to know that he was basically eyeballing these girls and like ogling at their boobs. And that was all I needed to know. I said, no, thank you, sir. And uh, ew. In addition to that, he was also reprimanded by the Arizona State Supreme Court for violating ethical rules during three other death penalty trials. So he also wrote a book about the trial, and I read parts of it. A lot of it was bravado, patting himself on the back, that kind of thing. Basically, you know, between that book and the way he acted in the trial, he's been heavily criticized for all of his involvement in the Jody Arias trial. So rather than going through another ethics trial where he had actually been accused of leaking the identity of a juror in Ms. Arias's case, as well as still sexually harassing female law clerks in his office, he decided he would avoid going to trial in November of 2020. Probably the right call since we were in coronavirus and it would probably still not have happened to this day. He decided he would agree to be disbarred from the practice of law in Arizona. He agreed to this, but he also still denies any misconduct, impropriety, all of that. I, uh, 
I feel like there's no redeeming anything in this trial, like at all, at all. It's just all shit. <laughs> like even the guy who's supposed to be the one who's defending Travis essentially is a scummy dude. Like what the hell? I kind of even feel like um, Travis could be a scummy dude. Right. And that's what I'm saying is like, even he participated in this like toxic behavior and it's just like, and, and from what I could tell, Travis was a decent guy. He had his issues. Like we said, he, we all have our issues, but yeah. Wow. So that's all I have. But one thing I do want to ask because I did not come across this. Do either of you know what happened to Napoleon? I do. <laughs> I I had to find out myself because I was like, okay, but but Napoleon, right? I need to know what happened in apps. From what I understand from what Chris or Sky said, Michelle, the friend of Mimi, Marie, who went to the house that day, took him that day out of the house. And then she kept him. Sky said, Napoleon needs to go to Deanna. And that's the last we heard of Napoleon. Not sure he's around anymore because it's been however many years, but from what I understand, Deanna had him last, which I think is a good, that's kind of a nice ending for him. So which one was Deanna again? She was the, his OG girlfriend in the Mormon church. The one who said, hey, no, I don't want to marry you. I'm going to go on the mission first. He dated. Oh, okay. The very first girlfriend. Yeah. Very first girlfriend, okay. kind of soulmate. And then on again, off again. Uh, from they had photos of Travis and Deanna, and she just looks like this sweet, like brunette lady. You know what I'm saying? Like that, like a church, like not old, but like a, like the poster child for Mormonism. Yes, exactly. Very poster child for Mormonism. Baking you Rice Krispie treats, stir fresh out of the oven. So if Napoleon could have gone to anybody, that was the right choice. <laughs> you do know you don't bake Rice Krispie treats, right? Right. Girl, it's been a hot minute since I've um bless your heart made rice krispies as you can tell. So um bless your heart. I know yeah. what we're doing next time you're at my house. Hell yeah, dude. And you don't oh. get to eat them unless you make them right. <laughs> I'm fine with it. The suddenly salad we had last time was incredible. <laughs> so, I'm okay with it. <laughs> yeah, I think that's all I have. I did want to ask your guys' final thoughts on Miss Arius. If you had any last minute things you wanted to say, besides the fact that she's a cunt. Mm. Amanda? Well, you know, I really feel like she just wanted love. And that was like a driving force for her. And she couldn't accept rejection. And unfortunately, like she was obsessed with Travis. And for some reason, she felt like Travis was probably her picture perfect ending. And unfortunately, that was probably his demise. Yeah, I'll, I'll agree with that statement. I think that's a really good summation of Jody. I think whatever wasn't addressed in her childhood mentally led her to become a very narcissistic, manipulative, dissociative, borderline type of person to then lead her to this behavior to where it was just acceptable, even with Daryl, to be kind of stalkery and, you know, change her hair color and get a boob job and all of that. And I will say for Travis, like we've said, you know, 
I'm not a perfect person. He definitely tried. Like if you read his blog and everything else, like he's one of those people that takes feedback and he would actually apply it to his life like a lot. Took it to heart. So I think that had he had a chance to make it past his 30th birthday for longer and be able to grow, he would probably would have been a motivational speaker, probably within the church and with PPL and everything else, probably still with Legal Shield to this day. Suburban life, you know, living with naps and his wife and kids, you know, shit like that. Like, I really think he would have eventually, you know, we all do stupid shit in our 20s and treat people like crap sometimes. Been very much a good person. So that would be my my last thoughts on on Travis. Yeah, and I'm glad you brought that up because as you guys were both kind of talking, I was thinking about the way he treated Jody and the things that he said and at least as, you know, far as I surmised from everything I listened to, everything I read, it really seemed like that behavior was just to Jody. And so I wonder if at some point, you know, again not to excuse the behavior cuz it's so gross, but just I think that we've, we can all remember a person in our lives that kind of brought out that nastiness in us and made us, you know, an angry person or a person who said thing, really shitty things to people. I think just her toxic nature brought something out in him that made him, you know, he needs to go on the defensive and he needs to be this person to her because she's just not getting it. Yeah, totally agree. That's a great point. Yeah. Otherwise, I feel like we would have some of those girlfriends saying, yeah, he called me a slut and a whore and a bitch. And, you know, he slapped me across the face and told me to shut up. I just feel if he was that kind of a person, there would be more evidence of that. And it really just seemed to be Jody. Yeah. And that's why I also think some of the name calling the whore and stuff, like when Jess was reading the transcript. She was saying, yes, I you like she was responding back. And I'm wondering what the entire context is, because if it is one of their role-playing sexing situations, was it like, did he only do it in those type of situations or did he do it all the time? Right. And one thing she did bring up at the trial, she testified that it was in the context of their sexual relationship, but he also would call her a slut and a whore whenever she would talk to another man. Again, this is coming from Jody, so it's hard to know if that's true or not. But the picture she's basically trying to present is that there was more than one use for it. And he often used it when she did something he didn't like, essentially. But again, this is what Jody said. Pants on fire. (laughs) (laughs) Exactly. I so appreciate you guys hanging with me for this terrible, terrible story and all of the research you guys put into the episode and just agreeing to do the collaboration. Well, this was really fun. I mean, I hate Jody, but hanging out with you was really fun. Same. Incredible work on your end too. Like just this has been so incredible. Thank you so much for having us. Yes. And if you guys ever need to talk shit about Jody, you know who to message. You're our girl. (laughs) (laughs) Thanks for joining us today. You can find us on SoundCloud, Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google, Amazon, or wherever you get your podcasts. And as always, we'll see you next Tuesday.